All right. It's Holy Week, the most significant week of the year in the church calendar. This is the week when everything changed. I pray that you will be able to participate in some of these special services coming up. Maundy Thursday is such a cool tradition here, and not just a cool tradition, it's really meaningful and really special as we celebrate the Lord's Supper on the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested on the night when he instituted the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. I can't wait uh, for that. And then Friday, we'll be across the street at Woodmont Christian for kind of an ecumenical, um, uh, interdenominational, I should say, uh, service with some preacher friends of mine. Um, it's funny, everybody listed as like Dr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so, who's preaching. So come here, some overeducated uh, uh, preachers who are going to be uh, sharing at... Uh, the Good Friday service at noon. Um, again, mask required over there as well and, and distancing, all that stuff. And then Easter Sunday, man, I'm so excited. I think we're going to have a great crowd. It's gonna, the choir is going to be here, brass. We're going to have uh, lilies, all kinds of stuff. If your allergies are severe, sit in the back because it's going to be a lot going on as we celebrate the most holy, most important day of all, Easter Sunday. I'm so grateful for some time away with my family last week, and I'm so grateful for Evan Kuntz, who's back there, did a great job with a very tough text, as he often reminded you. I got to assign him uh, the really judgment-y kind of section, and he handled it beautifully, uh, and he uh, did not disdain me too much for giving him that, but I'm grateful for our staff. Um, they're such a blessing to our church and to me personally, just a really good um, time right now in our staff. We're in this section still in Isaiah that deals with light and darkness, first in the southern kingdom of Judah, and now light and darkness in the northern kingdom of Israel. And we're, we're seeing how Isaiah is doing what all the prophets do. He cuts through the, the fog to show us what really is going on behind the scenes. He's showing people the truth. He's pulling back the curtain on the way that things appear to be, the shroud of illusion, and he's showing us what really is going on. And here in Isaiah, it's not pretty. As Evan mentioned last week, what he exposed was this pervasive sin among God's people. You know, we as humans, tend to go about our lives as if God is not sovereign over everything. We tend to, in our flesh, in our fallen weakness, humanity, we tend to live often as functional atheists, even we who have been Christians most of our lives. I was talking with a church member this week who was telling me about a really hard season in his life. And he said that once he, he surrendered everything to God and said, God, I'm giving it all to you, and he remembered that God is, is sovereign, everything changed in his life, and, and things worked out beautifully. And he remembered, oh yeah, God is actually working all things together for my good and for the good of the world. All he had to do was surrender to God's plan and, and forget that illusion that he was in charge in the first place, and it was all okay. But by this point in Isaiah, in Israel's history, God's people had long forgotten the covenants made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenants made with King David. They'd forgotten how God had plucked them out of Egypt and brought them to the beautiful promised land and established them there and drove out the, the, the Canaanites before them. 
They refused to believe that God's law, that his commandments, could actually lead to flourishing and actually lead to uh, a best life, to shalom, both for them and for the world around them. So as Evan reminded us last week, God got their attention. As he has a way of doing, sometimes God, in his great love for us, will absolutely flatten us. I think Evan said he punches us in the nose sometimes. <laughs> you know, I told you sometimes that when my, I tell my kids to do something, I'll say, look, you can do it the easy way or the hard way. It's up to you. It's going to get done, I promise you, one way or the other. You will clean your room. You could do it the easy way where you obey the first time and just do it. Or you can do it with a whole bunch of consequences that I give you as well. Your choice, you pick. As parents, God has tasked Morgan and I to establish our children in the way that they should go. He has given us this responsibility to love them enough to discipline them, to give them consequences when it helps to train them, when it helps to point them in the way that will lead to what is best for them for the rest of their lives. And sometimes they still choose the hard way. But no matter what they do, no matter uh, how many sad choices, we use that word at my house a lot, no matter how many sad choices they make, they could never do anything that will make Morgan and I stop loving them as our children, as our beloved children. <clears throat> as Evan pointed out last week, God's love for his children is unchangeable. It's unbreakable. It's unshakable. Nothing we ever do can make God stop loving us. And what we'll see today is this light in the darkness of sin. We're gonna see this great hope in the midst of discipline and judgment that Evan talked about last week. A.W. Tozer, great author, great man of, of faith and prayer and spiritual depth and authority, He's, he once wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any person is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. Everything about you, your identity, your purpose, your worth, your reason for living, for getting out of bed in the morning, all come from this one thing. Not your self-image, which is what our culture teaches, but your God image because you move towards that image. Jesus once asked his disciples, look, I've heard what all these people are saying about me, that I'm Moses, that I'm Elijah, but who do you say I am? I could picture him getting in his disciples' faces and saying, who do you say I am? That's a question we all have to answer. What we truly believe about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will determine our course in life. That's a fact. 
You know, sociologists have done studies on religious life in America, and it's, they were shocked to find that most Americans, an overwhelming majority of Americans, still identified as Christians. And when they probed a little deeper and said, wow, that's amazing, what do you believe? They, they really didn't believe Christianity. It was more like Christianity light. You know, they kind of saw God as like this benign helper who kind of, you know, wanted everybody to be fair and good and nice and polite and good people will go to heaven when they die. That's not the gospel at all. It's not the story that we read in scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Their God view was often that of a false God, a benign whateverism. They saw God as the one who made the world, yes, but he was basically uninvolved in their daily lives. But the gospel improves our God image. It, in turn, it improves our own life. And that, in turn, improves the world around us. The gospel shows us the reality of both God's great wrath against evil and sin, and his also, at the same time, his amazing love and the depths of his amazing grace. If we truly believe that, yes, our world, including you and me, is actually more broken and more flawed and more messed up than we ever could have really believed, but at the same time, God is more good and more sovereign and more loving and more willing to forgive, and you are more known and accepted than you ever dared to dream that both of those things are true, that would greatly improve our God image. If our hearts could learn to really believe that, to appropriate that truth, then our lives and our world would change. What we understand about God, when we, we think of him as, as actually supremely good and supremely in charge, then our God view moves closer to reality. That's what prompted C.S. Lewis to say, I use this quote a lot, but I love it. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward that are promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Isaiah's vision of God here can show us a better way. If we look closely, we might just get a clearer picture of who God really is. And then we might stop settling for just making mud pies in the slums like some ignorant child. We might learn to appropriate the promises of the richest of the riches of God himself in our own lives. So who is God according to Isaiah's vision? In this text for today, in Isaiah chapter 10, verses 16 to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 16, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open to Isaiah chapter 10. We're gonna look at what Isaiah sees as, when he thinks of God. God's gonna show him a revelation of himself. And we would do well to pay attention to this picture of God that Isaiah is showing us. The name that Isaiah uses most for God in this passage, over and over again, we're gonna see, is the Lord of hosts. 
Yahweh Sabaoth, right? We've sung that song, Lord Sabaoth, his name, right? It means the Lord who controls the legions of angel armies and therefore controls all of history. He's the one who holds all the cards and pulls all the strings. Look at verses 16. And then what's 16 say here, Gabe? You got that? Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, Yahweh Elohim Sabaoth, will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors. Talking about the king of Assyria. 23, the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. What's next? 24, therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion. 33, behold, the Lord God of hosts will lock the bowels with terrifying power. The picture here is that God is in control. So what is it exactly? We just kind of flew through those, but what is it that the Lord of hosts does? Let's get an accurate picture of the Lord God of hosts. What does he do for, for his people, for his beloved children? Well, I'm gonna give you six things. If you're taking notes or if you have an Isaiah journal, we have a few left. They're $5. If you don't have your $5, just take one. I know you're good for it, but they're at the north and south entrances. You can um, jot down some notes if you want. Six things that uh, the Lord does, the Lord God of hosts does specifically in this passage for his children. Number one, he reduces our enemies. He cuts down our enemies to, to really nothing. Look at verse uh, 19. The remnant of the trees of his, his here is the Assyrian king. The remnant of the trees of his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. Remember that in this section, Isaiah is talking about how the mighty Assyrian army that's amassing power and wealth in the east is coming west and they're conquering everybody in their path. It's a scorched earth campaign. They're just killing and slaughtering city by city as they go, and they're right on the doorstep of Judah and Israel. And God says, hey, those Assyrians, I'm gonna cut them down like trees in a forest to so few that a little kid can count them. It's hilarious to hear Jude and May teach Isaiah math. You know, Isaiah, what's, Jude the other day was like, what's three times four? I was like, he's four years old. He's not gonna know that. And Jude's like, no, we can do this. And he's focusing on it. But Isaiah's more into like counting on his fingers right now because he's four. That's how our enemies will be reduced in this day. Isaiah tells us that the Lord's gonna send sickness and fire to cut them down to size. Sickness that works from within. We know a lot about that these days, don't we? Fire that burns from without. There's nowhere for the enemy to hide. You know, we tend to, to panic. I do. Jude and I were caught in the hailstorm on Thursday. I don't know if you had hail, but we were about a quarter mile from my house when the bottom just fell out and we had Annie in the car, our golden retriever, and Jude just had two arms around her and was holding her tight, and I couldn't see anything. I just stopped on Terra Drive over there in, in Forest Hills, kind of Green Hills area, and just couldn't move because of the hail, and we just prayed, and Jude said, I prayed so hard. I said, me too, buddy, and uh, I thought the hail was coming in. I thought it was going to hit, you know, crack the glass. It was so big, but in those times, you know, we tend to, to panic like the, the Israelites did. In the face of scary things, in the face of worldly opposition, we all come across those times. But the truth is that God remains sovereign, that he remains in control and in charge. 
Yes, we may find ourselves in unprecedented times. We're all sick of hearing that. But as Christians, we know that God's the one who sets all the precedents in the first place. He's the one who, again, holds all the cards. What else does the Lord God of hosts do for his beloved? Number two, he sets apart a remnant. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, this, this really important idea in all of the Old Testament, really, of a remnant, a small, faithful group that God will preserve for himself. Look at verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. That's such a rich verse. That's such a beautiful verse. A couple of weeks ago, we saw how this remnant are faithful to God when others fall away. They're marked by the presence of God. Remember what we call that? Emmanuel, God with us. They have a proper fear of God. They have a right understanding of who God is and who they are in light of God. And we saw how the remnant is set apart by that unwavering commitment to truth, in truth, reality as God sets it, of who he is and who we are. If we can remember that all of this is not about us, it's about the sovereign Lord, we would do well. On our Wednesday night series, we're talking about work and, and worship and, and different professions. How do you see your job as a vocation, not just a job? And the common denominator in all of those has been, it's not about me. It's doing something bigger. It's something beyond myself. And that's what the remnant understands. This is something bigger than us. Here in verse 20, we also see the remnant is preserved and purified by God. The survivors, go back to that first slide, uh, the survivors in the house of Jacob are the ones that God has kept safe through all these trials and wars. The irony is that the rest of the people were leaning on their enemies. The very people who were attacking them, they were trusting in them to save them. And you may say, that's crazy, but we do this. We have a tendency to, to rely on the very things that are taking us captive. You know, Judah, the southern kingdom, had been trusting in powerful military nations around them like Assyria to save them. Israel in the north was making alliances with other military nations against Assyria. They both scrambled to find the biggest bully that they could get on their side they kept looking for these worldly alliances that only ended up causing them nothing but pain. They had to pay tributes. They sent their own people as slaves to these nations. They lived in fear of these nations. You know what Stockholm Syndrome is? You heard of that? People who are kidnapped or, or, or you know, taken hostage, they end up sometimes having an affinity for their captors. They, they start to, to see their captor as a, as a savior. That's kind of what happens here. You know, we develop an affinity for the very things that imprison us. We don't understand that our captors want nothing but to exploit us for their own gain. Eventually, they're going to destroy us because the things that have captured us do not love us, except for the one who captures our souls through Jesus Christ. 
eventually these things are going to ruin us if it's not the one who truly loves us. We have a tendency to lean on these false saviors who don't have our best interests in mind, and that is not the way of truth. Just as FBI agents try to get hostages to understand that their captor is not looking out for them, so does Jesus long to get our allegiance off of the things of this world that will ultimately destroy us. The third thing here that we see the Lord of hosts is doing is calling us back to himself. Look at verse 21. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. That's repentance language. Man, our culture really hates repentance. No one likes to be told that they're wrong or that they're going the wrong way. If Morgan points out, hey, you're driving the wrong direction here, we need to go that way, there's a very sinful part of me that just wants to keep on going, just to show her, I know where I'm going. But if I do that, the reality is I'm only getting further away from my goal. The only way to get where I need to go is to say, you're right, I was wrong to go that way, I'm gonna turn around and I'm going to start going in the right direction. Man, that's hard, isn't it? We call that repentance, and it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing to, to lay down and surrender and say, I was wrong. I was going the wrong way. I'm going to turn around and return to the mighty God who will never let me down. Repentance is a beautiful thing. The fourth thing that we see the Lord God of hosts do here is bring justice. Look at verse 22. Though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. God preserves this remnant while at the same time bringing judgment on our enemies, on the enemies of the remnant. And he's doing this with complete righteousness. He's, he's not wrong to do this. He's, he's meeting out justice against those who are wrong. He's, it's not arbitrary or done without thinking. He's doing this as a wise and loving father for the good of his children. He's completely justified in the consequences that he brings, just like when my kids choose the hard way, I bring justice <laughs> to them. The next thing that we see the Lord God of hosts do for us is he makes his people secure. He makes us dwell secure in safety. Look at verse 24. Therefore, thus the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid. How many of you are living in fear today? Man, I'm scared of a lot of things. Be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. There's so much fear and insecurity in our world today, of course. I heard someone say recently that if you read the news and you're not anxious, you're not worried, then there may be something wrong with you. The God who commands every molecule in the universe is the same one who tells his remnant, be not afraid. Even in the face of an overwhelming, unstoppable force, we know that he's always working all things together for our good. Look at verse 26. The Lord God of hosts will wield against them a whip as when he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea and he'll lift it up just like he did in Egypt. 
The God who, you know, led uh, 300 with Gideon, this tiny little force. He just kept winnowing down that little force to 300 guys against all the Midianites and destroyed all the Midianites. Is the same God who led, we think, maybe 2 million slaves, runaway slaves, out of captivity in Egypt and across dry land in the Red Sea while being pursued by the mighty Egyptian army. That same God can make a way for us. He's done it before and he can do it again. Finally, the sixth thing that we see the Lord God of hosts do for us is that he humbles the mighty, the mighty in the world's eyes. Look at verse 33. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the bowels with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. This is why the Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to who? To the humble. Everything about the gospel is, is countercultural. The gospel is subversive. It flips everything that this world says conventional wisdom should be on its head. The way our world thinks is not the way the gospel operates. We need to remember that. That's what makes it so effective. We think the thing that wins is the biggest and most powerful thing, and Jesus comes riding in on a donkey. It's important to remember the gospel is subversive. We tend to esteem people who are loud and who are big and proud, people who seem to have it all together, people who have the ability to impose their will on others and get things done. That's not the way of the gospel. That's not how the Lord of hosts, the one who has all power and all authority, that's not the way he does things. That's not the way of Jesus. And it's not the way that real power and real positive change in our world takes place. At the end of chapter 10 here, we see that the Lord of hosts has cut down human pride like a forest reduced to stumps. This would come to pass quite soon. The Assyrian army would soon be wiped out by another army, the Babylonians. But something new altogether was coming, something unexpected a king who would be unlike any other king. On this Palm Sunday, we celebrate the king of the world who rode into Jerusalem as a homeless, self-taught rabbi on a baby donkey, not just a donkey, but a baby one, <laughs> to make a point. That's what Zephaniah prophesied too. The son of a carpenter from little old backwoods Nazareth, right? Little you know, Steve, you're from some town. I don't even know it. What is it, West Tennessee somewhere? Fayetteville or something? I don't even know. Near Fayetteville. You know, and I'm, I'm from Nashville. I'm so sophisticated. Jesus was from Nazareth. That's like being from some little tiny town. There's nothing outwardly impressive about him at all. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse the lineage of King David, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. From Jesse, the father of King David, a failed lineage been reduced to a stump is gonna produce a ruler unlike any other. Unlike the wicked king, remember this king at this time is King Ahaz, he's terrible. All his decisions are bad. This new king 
This descendant of King David will have God, the Holy Spirit on him and in him. Look at verse two. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit, capital S, of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Every time you see fear of the Lord, you see knowledge and truth, having a right understanding of who God is. That's going to make this king totally different because he will be the anointed one, the Mashiach, the Messiah. He's not going to be some earthly ruler with, you know, knights and swords and human ego, but he's going to be uniquely qualified as the ruler, not just of Jerusalem, not just of Israel, but of the world, of the universe. Look at verse five. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This Messiah is righteous and faithful. Do you know what that means? That means he's right all the time and he's always right on time. God is righteous and faithful right all the time and always right on time. He comes to turn everything on its head. He turns things right. He fixes what's broken, not as a huge warrior riding in with a, a war horse ready to force everyone to obey him. No, our king comes humbly with the kind of power that is infinitely greater than any worldly power. Yes, our world is broken, but this king comes to make it new again and he's the only one who can. The Messiah will usher in a whole new era. Nature itself will be transformed. Look at verse six. The wolf's gonna lie down with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with a young goat. What? The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. By the way, people who want to know if their dog's going to be in heaven, I don't know. But animals, we got animals here in the new creation, okay? The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the winged child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, so will the knowledge of the Lord be. It's a beautiful thing. That's the world that this king comes to create. You know, he is the word, the logos, by which everything was spoken into creation, into being. There's so many voices in our world claiming to be able to fix our world. Politicians, preachers, we're the worst. Economists, uh, you got teachers, businessmen, scientists, all clamoring for our attention and for our allegiance. But all these voices fail to tell the truth, ultimately. Ray Ortland says, other revolutions have promised us liberation and instead oppressed us. But if we bow to the rule of King Jesus, he will lead us into everything safe and pleasant with no dark side, no forced laughter, no guilty conscience, and no unhealed wounds. The kingdom that Jesus ushers in when he rides in on Palm Sunday is not one made of rules and religi religiosity. It's a kingdom of shalom, a kingdom envisioned by the Lord God of hosts. 
and he will see it through. He will make it happen. This kingdom is a kingdom of peace and prosperity. It's a greater enjoyment of everything good, good food, good times with friends and family. It's about relationships being restored, good music, good art. All will be elevated and enhanced through his reign and through his rule. His kingdom is going to be the final answer to hunger, to poverty, to justice, to racial wounds, to whatever it is in our world that is wrong, this kingdom will make it right. Ortland says, every human gospel is a slapdash mockery of our longings, but Christ has already been rejected by all our top people and condemned by our system and raised to God by the immortal life that will renew the world. That's next week. What can stop him now? So what comes into your mind when you think of God and his kingdom? What comes into your mind? Do you envision the mighty Lord of hosts working all things together for your good and for his glory? Do you see an upside down kingdom coming to make all things new? Isaiah gives us a glimpse of what it will look like when the final triumphal entry will happen. He's going to do it again. I hope I'm there to lay my cloak down. And we all shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. Look at verse 10 to close here. And that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Go to verse 12. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim, that's Israel, shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Sounds like sibling rivalry. That'll be squashed. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west, and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab and the Ammonites, shall obey them, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals, and there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. It'll be a homecoming unlike any other. Coming down the highway back home. It's like the prodigal son returning to his father. That's who our God is. He's the Lord of hosts who leads us home, who welcomes us home in joy and throws us a party. He's also the gentle and lowly king who comes in humility to turn everything on its head. He's the lion and he is the lamb the always righteous and always faithful one who preserves our inheritance in a land flowing with milk and honey, the one who will return in triumph once and for all and fulfill every gospel promise because in Jesus Christ, every promise is yes and amen. That's the God that Isaiah shows us. Is that the God that you think of when you think of God? Let's pray. Lord, please improve our God image 
Help us to have an accurate picture of who you are. Help us to understand what it is that you are doing, that you have done for us, that you are doing for us now, and that you will do one day when Jesus returns for the second and final triumphal entry. God, may we be there to see it. God, we long for that day when you will break back into our world with that legion of angel armies swirling behind you and say, enough, no more sickness, no more injustice, no more strife between races, no more economic systems of oppression, no more political mumbo jumbo, no more um, enemies that are siblings who are rivals, but you will come to bring peace once and for all. God, as we anticipate that day, may our God image inform the way we live our lives now. We do ask, come Lord Jesus, come quick. But if you don't, God, if you, if you tarry, may we live faithful lives as your remnant, knowing that you preserve and purify us in order to live into your good purposes, both for us and for our world. God, we know there's so much that's wrong in our world. We know there's so uh, many things that are broken. We pray that you would help us to understand that through Jesus, you're making them new again. God, we pray that you would use us as your church to rise up and take our place in the proper role as a prophetic minority. Yes, we may be decreasing in number like like they have decreased in number in Europe and other places in the world, but God, you are raising up a new generation of believers and your church will prevail because through Jesus and through your Holy Spirit, we are an unstoppable force for good. God, help us to live into that reality as we get a clearer picture of who you are, as we anticipate a day of resurrection like no other. God, we love you. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to have a time of response now. Whatever it is that the Lord wants to do, maybe you feel like you're one who's gone far off. Maybe you feel like you've been dragged to Assyria, and I get it. It may be addiction. It may be marital uh, brokenness. It may be whatever is, is it is in your life that has led you to Assyria. Maybe it's time now to follow that highway home that the Lord God has opened up for you. Maybe you've never received the forgiveness that's offered in Christ Jesus for the very first time. Maybe you're ready to say, I surrender all to Christ. I want to receive that gift of grace in my life and go from death to life and become a whole new person from the inside out. Whatever it is that you need to do today, maybe it's just that you've been going after false gods and you need to return to the Lord with all of your heart and stop being a half-hearted creature fooling around with worldly sins when God offers you a holiday at the beach. Whatever it is that you need to do, may you deal with Jesus Christ. I'll be here in the front if you want to talk with our mask on. Uh, whatever it is that you need to do during this time. I'll also be outside uh, in the south entrance if you want to talk to me later too. But deal with the Lord in your heart before we leave today. Will you stand and sing with us?